always been fascinated with the giant redwood trees out in California since the time I was a kid and saw pictures of them. I've never been there. One of these days, maybe. I'm still amazed about those trees and their their stature, their longevity. They have one species that will reach to 350 feet tall. Tallest trees on planet Earth. Some reaching 25 feet in diameter. Some living nearly 3,000 years. Amazing. The root system in a redwood forest, however, they say, only goes down into the earth about 6 to 12 feet. Now think about that. 350 feet tall, roots only 6 to 12 feet? I mean, most trees have a root system that are <laughs> just as... Uh, whatever the opposite of tall is, they reach into the earth as far as the tree may be tall above. But redwoods do not have tap roots. They weigh nearly 500 tons on top of everything else. You would think that they would be susceptible to every windstorm that happened, but they are not. In fact, they are very, very stable be it strong winds, earthquakes, whatever. All because of their root system, which is only 6 to 12 feet deep. You say, how so? Because that root system, though it does not go down deep, goes out for hundreds of feet. And redwood trees grow tightly together in their place where they grow, they, they grow in very limited areas. And their root systems, as they, they each send out roots horizontally, intertwine with one another. And this is what gives them their incredible stability. What a marvelous design of God. They literally hold each other up. Now the redwoods and their root system have been often compared to the church. Because we, as God's body, all join together, part of his body, we too hold each other up. Now, it is true that we as God's children also have a very deep root system, too. There's been plenty of occasions in history where God's people have been isolated and persecuted and treated horribly, and yet they continue, continue to stand firm in the power of God. But God has given us multiple layers of resources. We not only have the Holy Spirit within, but we have the body of Christ around us. And as we are successfully connected to others in the body, we grow stronger, 
firmer, more faithful. The church is literally connected, self-connected, each member to the other, for such a wonderful result. Now, it is our responsibility to be intentionally dependent upon others within the body of Christ. And that's why in these verses this morning, verses 12 to 15 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we are told in no uncertain terms about the relationship that we should have one with another in the church. Now next week we will move on, uh, in two weeks, I'll have a special message next week, but in two weeks we'll move on to talk about our relationship with God in particular, but through verse 12, Paul dwells on our relationship with each other here on the horizontal plane. And this comes after talking about the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord, our hope, and the unbelievers' justice before God and judgment. And now Paul comes back as he closes out the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and he talks about the relationship that he's often mentioned all the way through the book. And he has praised them, and he has... uh, spoken so well of them over and over and over again. It wasn't as if they didn't have this relationship. But again, Paul understands that they are facing what every church faces, and that is the pressure to split apart, to lose one's grasp on their fellow believers, to become self interdependent. So in verses 12 through 15, we have here God's guidelines. God's guidelines for good relationships. And he is speaking about the relationships we have with each other as believers. He's not talking about our home life. He's not talking about the fact that we should... uh, you know, love even our enemies or care about people in the world. He's talking about the church. Now, it's true the principles that we see here will apply in other areas and other places. But he is specifically focused on the Thessalonian church. And so we can understand this is for us, God's people. It's about our relationship with other believers. These are God's guidelines. So we have to ask ourselves then this question. What is it that we need to do if we're going to follow God's guidelines for good relationships in the church? What are, what are the requirements? There are three I want you to see here with me this morning. Number one, requirement number one, that we must demonstrate the demeanor to cooperate. And by the word demeanor, I mean the attitude, the determined attitude, the desire to be cooperative and get along with leadership primarily. 
That's where he begins in verse 12. Paul says, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So the demeanor here that we're talking about is in reference to the leadership, the human leadership in the church. He he says, we urge you as present tense, I, I beg with you, I plead you to always, all the time, maintain a proper attitude, a proper demeanor towards those in leadership. Now the word translated recognize here in the New King James, he says to recognize those is a word in the original which actually means to respect. To respect those who labor among you. Now, he gives us the reasons here why that those who preach the word, those who provide leadership in the church, should have our respect. Number one, we need to respect their position. Their position. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. Those who have the position of leadership. Those that, that do work in that capacity. Respect their position. They are over you. Those who labor among you and are over you. Now the over you translates a Greek word which literally means to proceed or go before or lead. Those who lead you. Pastor, the elder's job is not to be a lord, is not to be someone who dictates, not to be someone who determines what other people do, but someone who gives gentle shepherdly leadership to the church. So they need to be respected for their position. Interesting uh, enough, the Gallup organization does a poll every so many years to determine what the most respected professions are in America. And back in uh, 2016, uh, the clergy was ranked number eight. We, we came up a little in 2019. We, we moved up to seven. I'm kind of surprised at that in this world today and in the attitudes we see toward Christianity. Uh, back in colonial days, uh, those who pastored, those who led churches had a much higher uh, standing in the eyes of the general public. Today, the church is an afterthought to many. If it were not for God's people, who probably do have a better attitude being a part of that survey, uh, it wouldn't be as high as it is. They need to be respected for their position. Number two, they need to be valued for their work. Valued for their work. Those who labor among you. Now, what kind of work do they do? Well, he's, again in verse 12, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You see the two functions or two aspects of their work. They are over you, they have oversight, they have leadership responsibility, and they admonish you, which is a word which sometimes means to warn, but in other contexts as it is here, can simply mean to instruct or teach. 
And that, of course, uh, meaning instruction or teaching from the Word of God. So, respect their position, value their work, and then finally he ends it all up at the end of verse 13 and says, be at peace among yourselves. Now, the interpretation of this last phrase is very important because it's the only imperative in verses 12 and 13. Now, what's going to happen here as we move into verse 14 and following, there's a whole string of imperatives. Now, an imperative is a command. It's a mode in the Greek language. It makes it very clear that the verb is giving a command in no uncertain terms. And he begins by gently urging them, uh, encouraging them, you see in verse 12, to respect those that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then he says in verse 13, to think of them or to esteem them very highly. You know, in the church, the uh, I, I mean, I don't know what's proper, but uh, I think in the church, for those who go to church, uh, the pastor's position would be a lot higher than number seven in the eyes of people. Not because of who he is. Not because of him personally, but for a reason, because of the work, you see, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, the in love part is very interesting. In the Greek, that little prepositional phrase can either indicate sphere like time, place, or it can talk about instrumentality. It depends on the context. And here, what it's basically saying is to think highly of, think very highly of those in leadership. By the way, it's always plural in the New Testament, pretty much, and it is here. It's not talking about just the pastor, but those plural that are in leadership, all included. Uh, those on the pastoral staff, elders, so on. Now, he says, esteem them very highly in love, literally by your love, or by expressing your love, demonstrating your love. Again, not because they deserve it individually. They are no a pastor, a preacher, a teacher, an elder is of no higher rank than the people in the congregation in the eyes of God as far as the, the you know, we're the same. We're sinners saved by grace and we're nothing special. But the work we're called to do is special. That's what he's trying to say. And so he winds it all up now by giving a stern command and says, be at peace among yourselves. What does he mean? He means between the congregation and the leadership, be at peace. That's the context here. And he wants to be very clear about that. The concluding statement here is a present tense imperative. All the time, maintain peace. We live in a day and age in which there is very little understanding, even among God's people, of the necessity of submission to leadership and maintaining a proper attitude to those that are in leadership. But the scripture is very, very clear. So, number one, as far as our relationships in the church, we need to have the proper demeanor that brings about cooperation with those in leadership. But then number two, We need to have the right kind of discernment in order to help and be a blessing and edify other believers. We need to have the discernment to help. And here's where we go as we move into verse 14. 
Paul says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, confront, excuse me, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So now Paul moves away from this matter of what's the relationship between the flock and the shepherd. Now he moves down on the level between the sheep. We all have a responsibility to each other. The sheep have a responsibility as far as how they treat and how they respect those in leadership. The leadership has a responsibility. We've noticed it here. They are to lead and they are to admonish. The sheep also have a responsibility on the horizontal plane with one another. This is not just something given here that pastors are to be mindful of. Now, believe me, this is a verse I refer to quite often uh, in regard to my pastoral work. But it's not just for pastors. This is for everybody. And again, he continues now, and every verb you see from here on out, except for one exception down in verse 15, is a present tense imperative. It means that we have been commanded to do it, God expects us to do it, and we're supposed to do it all the time without interruption. This is a very, very solemn responsibility. And he says we're to do this. We're to warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Now, in every command here, and the commands are to warn, to comfort, to uphold, and be patient. But every command is connected to a particular condition of the person we're dealing with. So he says, number one, verse 14, we are to warn the unruly. <clears throat> now, it's it's more than just stop doing that. It's not that kind of warning. It's an instructive type of warning. You, you should not be doing this. You should be doing that. The word unruly in the original is a word which means to, just the opposite of an, an army marching in order and in step together. If you can imagine uh, going to one of these, you know, military parades or whatever they they call those things when they get everybody together and they march around and, and it looks so impressive and every soldier in a, in, a, in a great group is marching perfectly in step. It's 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 a wonderful thing to watch. But can you imagine somewhere maybe about halfway through the parade route, one of the guys in the middle said, oh, "I'm going over here my own way," you know, and he just starts marching off like this. He's an unruly. Soldier at that point, that that would that would not not do him any good, and it would embarrass everybody involved. So, uh, in the church, unfortunately, we we always seem to have somebody marching off on their own behest. Uh, all all too often, and Paul understands that. And the Thessalonian church that he is commended so highly is about to experience that in earnest, and I think Paul sees it on the horizon. He senses it coming. Their whole misunderstanding about the second coming, as some became idle, they quit working, they quit being involved in trade, and they started being busybodies, getting involved in other people's business, telling other people what to do, not doing anything productive. That all comes in Second Thessalonians. And Paul, Paul has given them a, a warning beforehand, and yet it still happens. So he says, instruct the unruly. 
Now, an unruly person has to be dealt with logically and objectively. You really don't get very far with an unruly person if you're real subtle, you know? Well, you know, you might want to do this. You know, No, you've got to be a little bit more demonstrative. That's number one. Number two, he says, comfort the faint-hearted. Interesting word in the Greek for translated faint-hearted. It actually in the Greek says little-souled. Uh, not your shoe, but your soul. <laughs> little-souled. <laughs> Sometimes my shoes wear a little thin and I have little soles, but that's not what we're talking about. This is an S-O-U-L. Now, uh, what, what Paul is talking about is people who are unable to maintain their motivation, maintain their encouragement, maintain their faithfulness. He's talking about people that just don't seem to have the capacity to deal with disappointments. People that don't seem to have the capacity to effectively uh, deal with discouragement. And, and people that, that tend to, to be depressed and down. Now, now, these are people that you talk with that are always negative. You, you can spot them because they always talk in negatives. There could be a, there could be a hundred things going great, but they will be dwelling on the one thing that's not. Be it in their own life, be it in the church, be it in their work, be it in the world. They're just negative people and they can't ever seem to get out of that mindset. Now, we can't reach into someone's heart and soul as, as God's children and change that. Only God and the Holy Spirit and, and, and that individual can deal with that. We can't do anything about it except what we can do, and what we can do is comfort them. Because what they are feeling is very real. If they are discouraged, that's very real to them. If they're disappointed, if they're depressed, it, it, is, a, it is a dark cloud in their soul. Now, I realize sometimes people can have problems that, such as depression, which have uh, causes of uh, physiologically, they have nothing to do with spiritual. But other times people, they have some trauma in their life that they've never really gotten over because they haven't dealt with it on the spiritual plane either. But whatever the reason, whatever the circumstance, when you encounter one of these people, what they need, they, they, they do not need a swift kick, okay? That doesn't work. You're just going to beat them up, push them down. Uh, that's, you need to comfort them. Now, there's two words in the Greek, in the New Testament, often translated comfort. One is parakaleo, which we normally refer to, which means to call out to someone so that they will come to your side and you can actually give them uh, a, a different perspective on life, your perspective. That's not the word here. This is a word very similar to it, parathumia, which means to literally... Just go to somebody, not not because you're trying to give them a different outlook, but, but for the purpose of consoling them. But just putting your arm around them and saying, I love you. I'm praying for you. We'll get through this together. I know it's difficult. To be consoling, comforting to those who are faint-hearted. And then he says to uphold the weak. The word uphold in the Greek literally means to hold up. It means to support, to lean against. Uh, 
used to help my daddy do some carpentry when I was a kid. And sometimes my job was to get on the other side of the two boards and, you know, push against it with my shoulder or hold it with my hands while he nailed from the other side. That's kind of, kind of the picture here. You're holding with your strength and pressure as best you can, holding something up that would otherwise fall. So uphold the weak. Some Christians are just weak. Now, normally weakness is to be equated with immaturity. Sometimes Christians are weak because they just haven't been saved very long. They, they haven't had time to grow. They haven't had time to really, you know, develop their spiritual muscles to become mature. So they're weak. Uh, young people sometimes fall into that category, but it could just as well be an adult. It could fall into that category. And you might look at him and say, well, yeah, he or she ought to know better, you know, but it doesn't do any good. Uh, you need to recognize when someone is weak, they need to be propped up. They need to be shown how to do something. They need to uh, be encouraged that they can do something. I'm telling you, as a pastor, I run into these three individuals all the time. And I also run into other Christians who get frustrated with these three individuals all the time. And I will, I will be honest. Sometimes I tend to can be, I can tend to be frustrated too. But I try to remind myself of a verse that's back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter thirteen, and verse twenty-three. And this is in the parable of the sower. At the conclusion of the parable of the sower, you know, the sower went forth to sow. Some of the seed fell in good ground, some didn't. One of the seeds was the real thing, representing the believer, puts their faith in Christ. They grow and they produce fruit. But he says this about the one of the four that's a true believer and not a false professor. He says, but he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. By the way, others, the others, other seeds heard the word, but you don't find that phrase understands it for them. But here, the one who really truly is born again, he hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit. And the fruit bearing indicates and demonstrates he understands he's made the decision. He is true and bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold. Sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, some 60 fold, uh, and some 30. Why did Jesus say that? I, I don't think it's because the 30 folders can't do better. I think he's just recognizing reality that even among God's people that are truly born again, there are different levels of fruit bearing. I've run across a lot of people, a lot of pastors, in my estimation, <clears throat> that were always frustrated with the 60-folders and the 30-folders. I've run across a lot of people, a lot of sheep, a lot of everyday Christians in the pews that have the same frustration. 
Because they're at a certain maturity level, a certain level of producing fruit in their own life, and they tend to look around and they, and they begin to doubt other people's salvation because, well, they're just, you know, they don't seem to be fully what they ought to be. Jesus recognized this reality. We need to recognize this reality. Not everybody is going to be everything that we wish they could be. Not every disciple is going to be everything we hope they can be. You can spend hours and you can spend months and you can spend years discipling somebody and they may only reach 30-fold. Whatever that is. It's just a comparison. So, we need to understand that. Maybe the 30-fold person here is a little unruly, a little faint-hearted by characteristic, or just as weak. You know, you, you keep propping them up and they keep falling. You prop them up and they fall. Prop them up and they fall. You don't give up on them. You don't, you don't abandon them because they fall. You don't abandon them because they get discouraged. You don't throw them away as far as your relationship is concerned because they're a little unruly. No, you just have to understand that. We have an ongoing responsibility, present tense imperative, no matter what, we keep on warning the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak. And then he winds it all up and he gives us a, a, a big general principle on the end. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with all. Now that's the Greek word that sometimes in the New Testament, in the, in the King James, New King James is transfer, translated long suffering. That's the way one of my professors used to always talk about it when we came to this word. And we had to understand the meaning. He would, he would express the meaning that way. Long suffering. <laughs> That's what it takes, long-suffering, to deal with other people, period. Even in the church, if we're going to be everything we should be to everybody as possibly and do as much as we can for every other believer in this horizontal network of relationships, you better be long-suffering. You've got to be long-suffering. You lose patience then the whole process is truncated. Now you say, boy, man, Pastor, that, uh, it seems like a, 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 it seems like a complicated process. No, it's not. You can learn this very easily. But I want to do, I do want to give you practical ways to develop this discernment. It is so practical. It is so simple. You already know how to do it. Here's how you can develop discernment. Three ways. Observe, listen, and ask. Pretty simple. You observe somebody. You look at somebody and you can just see that person's discouraged. That person's down. That person's worried. That person's burdened. You see it on their face. You see it in their, in their, their actions. You see it, uh, in their body language. You're just not, it's just not registering in your mind. But once you, once you alert your mind to it, you, you pick it up. You can see it. Become observant. Be, begin to look at, look at people. Look, we, we often, unfortunately too often, we can easily spot other people's faults. 
we notice when they're unruly, when they're faint-hearted and so on. But go the second step. Begin to think, okay, I see it. What do I need to do? Listen, listen. They'll tell you what's wrong. They'll tell you through their negativity. They will tell you through their criticism of someone or something, maybe even you. They will tell you what they're struggling with. But instead of reacting, especially if the criticism is directed to you, oh man, that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? We all react. Someone says something that's not true, or something, somebody says something we think is harsh, or to, we react. You gotta learn. We all have to learn to try to understand when we see that. Not only observe, but listen. What are they saying? What are they saying? What is it that they're dealing with? What are they, is, are, are, the, are they, are they discouraged? Are they, uh, unruly? Are they just weak? Then, number three, ask. Now, here's what you ask. How are you doing? <laughs> Pretty simple, right? Although most people are not going to respond quite as well to that one as if you say, what are you thinking about right now? Especially if, some, if somebody exhibits some behavior and you realize it's a problem, you can say, what? what What's behind all this? What are you thinking about right now that, that, that brought out that statement? Just probe a little bit with your questions. Trouble is, sometimes we don't want to probe because we don't want to have to deal with what comes out, you see. But if you're going to be, if you're going to be what you need to be relationship-wise on that horizontal plane within the church, you need, we need to learn to observe, listen, and ask. The diagnosis will be very simple if we do those three things. All right, let's move on to number three. The third thing, the third guideline for good relationships in the church is the determination to do good. The determination to do good. To do good things for everybody all the time. Present tense imperative. Verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Well, don't return evil for evil. Uh, we can go to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. And Paul spelled it out very plainly there. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, no vengeance. Uh, don't return evil for evil. Now, this applies to fellow church members, but also applies to anybody, even those outside the church here, because he says, to anyone, don't render evil for evil to anyone. And then he says, but always pursue that which is good both for yourselves and for all. So uh, this is even a broader uh, responsibility here than just in the church. And then he ends up here, or I end up here in this list, 
with this thought of passionately pursuing the good. That's what it says. Pursue what is good. Present tense imperative all the time. Always pursue, chase after what is good. Rather than trying to get even, trying to even the score. There's a story that goes way back to the American Revolution. It's always intrigued me. A man by the name of Michael Widman, who lived uh, up in Pennsylvania. He got in trouble with the British. He he was really a a patriot, but he got in trouble with the British and offended them. And to get off the hook somehow, to avoid punishment from them, he uh, he gave details uh, that he shouldn't have given to the enemy. He was convicted of treason. He was about to be hanged. Well, Michael Widman was a terrible enemy of another man in his hometown, a man by the name of Miller, a pastor, by the way, Peter Miller. Michael Widman was such an enemy, and one time they were just in such a dispute that Widman actually spit in the face of the pastor. Well, when Michael Widman was to be hanged, Peter Miller heard of it, he trekked many miles, he found George Washington, and he pleaded for a pardon for Michael Widman. Washington, thinking that Widman was his friend, says, I'm sorry, I can't do anything for your friend. And Peter Miller said, my friend? No. He said, Michael Widman is the worst enemy I have on earth. That so impressed General Washington, he granted the man's pardon. Peter Miller hurried off to the gallows where he found Widman about to be hanged and gave the pardon to those involved, and he and Michael Widman walked home together. That's what I'm talking about here. Such a beautiful picture. Now here's this as we conclude. I want you to think about putting out some roots. No, no, I didn't say putting down some roots. I said Think about putting out some roots. Well, that's a difficult thing right now. It's a difficult thing. I mean, can we all stand up like this and, and stretch our arms out? You know, this is the kind of thing we do in children's church, you know, but we remember it. Now, you can only put your arms around your family, you see, because we're all socially distanced here. How, how in the world are we going to put out roots when we're keep, kept away from everybody right now? That's a challenge. We, we can't socialize. I'm not, I mean, you know, you can from six feet. If you're like me, you can't hear anybody from six feet. <laughs> That's about hopeless. Uh, maybe you can. But you know, Alexander Graham Bell invented a great thing when he invented a telephone. If it's used in the right way. And that's what we got to use right now. Things like that. To reach out and talk and care about one another. Warn each other and comfort one another. Support one another.